Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we're bringing you a recent broadcast of Hope and Help Live, a periodic segment of the podcast that features live recorded interviews previously streamed on Facebook. Joining us to chat about his book, Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols, is Pastor Brad Bigney. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Brad Bigney is an ordained minister with the Evangelical Free Church of America and is a graduate of Columbia Biblical Seminary with his Master of Divinity. He's a Certified Biblical Counselor with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, as well as a National Conference Speaker. He and his wife, Vicki, have been married since 1986 and have five children. Well, I would like to go ahead and get us started, Brad. You know, I know who you are. You are Pastor Brad Vigney, the author of Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. And I have really loved this book. I watched the video series on your church website, and I was just so thrilled that you accepted not only the invitation to join me for the podcast, but you were brave enough to come live on video, which not everyone, you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea. You've earned even more notches on the respectometer for that. I really appreciate you being here today. Nice. You're welcome. It's a joy to be here. I like to talk about this as often as I can. Will you give us a little bit of background, who you are, what it is? For those who are not familiar, maybe just take a minute to introduce yourself. Yes. I was raised in a Christian home. I was saved when I was seven, grew up in good Bible teaching churches and heard the Bible taught. And I hope I learned a lot but there were some things missing. And uh, at 19 years old, I felt God calling me into the ministry. So I left University of Tennessee where I was in pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor and I went to Columbia Bible College. And I just, again, it took me to another level of seeing how practical and relevant the Bible is. And a particular professor there really got me excited about how to find the main point of the passage and make it life application. And I'm sad to say that I grew up in the church and often the preaching just seemed disconnected from real life. And I, and I got excited and thought, I would like to be a preacher who tries to put it on the bottom shelf for how would I apply this? And so that's what also got me excited about biblical counseling. Don't just preach, but show people how when they're stuck. And that's why I'm so excited about Idols of the Heart. This was a concept I did not hear taught growing up. Maybe I missed it, But when I ran into this, and I was already 32 years old, and I said, oh my goodness, where have I been? This is a breakthrough to understand the sin beneath the sin on a heart level as to why I do what I do. And that's what got me excited enough to preach a sermon series and then to put it in a book, uh, which was really hard. You know, I've got lots of sermon series, but more than any other series, I've been here 25 years now. I hear more back on this series from people from other states and places saying, this changed my life. This is what was missing because it was what was missing for me as well. So I came here and planted a church in Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky uh, 25 years ago. And now I've been the lead pastor and we have a free counseling training center that goes along with our church. I really appreciate it in the book. It seemed as though this awakening to idolatry, you call it the sin beneath the sin, really kind of fleshed itself out in the context of your marriage. And so I would love if you would take just a minute to give us a little bit of that context. For those listening, I imagine if you were honest, you'd have to say, we really, and if you looked at your life, you'd probably admit, when do you actually grow the most? It's almost always in a time of pain and suffering. Not automatically, you could get bitter, but usually when life's okay, we just do life. We don't, we don't reconsider anything we need to learn. But in pain, we cry out and say, what is wrong? What? I'm stuck. So for us, it was marriage. For some people, it's a parenting trial. For other people, it's a health trial or a financial trial. But for us, it was marriage. We were stuck. We met at Bible college. We both loved Jesus. You know, like, what could go wrong? She loves Jesus. I love Jesus. We met at Columbia Bible College. Like, Wow. You know, I grew up in the church in the youth group that always just say, marry a Christian girl, marry a Christian girl, as if that would take care of everything. And it's a great start, but oh my goodness, 
she would say what she would say and I would say what I would say and I would say it louder and she would cry and we'd retreat to our corners and we'd wait a few days and we'd do it all over again. And it wasn't abuse, there was no profanity. It was garden variety marriage struggles of, I see it my way, you see it your way, I want my way, you want your way, and who's most right? And I would try to change, Christine. You know, well-meaning people would say, you gotta date your wife like you used to, and I would try, or you gotta do this, and I would try, or you should have a hobby together. But notice what's going on. Those are introducing new activities, and that's on the surface. And I would try, and it would not last, because my heart had not changed. And so finally, we broke down and went to a biblical counselor, and uh, oh my goodness, he asked such good questions that drew out the heart. Now, I'm a talker, you can tell already, and uh, I'm not that guy that just sits there and you wish he would say something. And so I was convinced if I can put present this well enough, and I think I can, I'll win the day, and he'll agree with me. He'll see it my way, and he'll tell her what I've been trying to tell her. So I'm talking, 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 and about six sessions in, he says, Brad, I perceive that you have some potential heart idols that drive you. And then, oh my goodness, he started quoting back to me. I felt so, I'm like, oh my goodness, I thought you were my friend. I trusted you. You've been writing down what I've been saying. And he started quoting back, you keep saying this, you keep saying this, and you keep saying this. And it sounded so ugly hearing someone else say it. And he said, I'd never heard this concept before. I think you have some significant heart idols that drive why you do what you do and want what you want. And I wasn't happy at first, but when I took it before the Lord and he said yes, and I began to repent on a heart level, what I call root instead of fruit. I began to repent of some root sins. Oh, we were unstuck. We began to move forward. I could truly change I'm not perfect, but if Vicki was here today, she would say, oh my goodness, he is so different. He has changed so much. Because I was that guy that we often say, it's just who I am. It's just who I am. I'm not gentle. I'm not merciful. It's just who I am. Brad, I wondered, just for purposes of this conversation, especially if there are people listening who maybe, like you said, you know, you, you feel like you grew up in the church and then this concept of idolatry was brand new to you in later in life. Yeah. And so there may be listeners who aren't really all that familiar, or maybe they have a vague understanding of what a heart idol is, but I would love for you to maybe take some time yeah. to unpack that for the listeners, just so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, I, my definition, and I don't have a Bible verse to match with this, but it's as I read the scriptures, and I'm sure I'll keep growing, but I do read through the whole Bible every year. And I've been doing it year after year after year after year. And so in reading the scriptures and looking at both old and new, I have formed a definition that I say this, an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture your heart and mind and affections more than God. In other words, it's living on a counterfeit God. It's exchanging the one true God for something in this created world. There's something else that drives me, whether it's a person or whether it's a cause or an idea or an object. It can be your work. It can be your image. It can be your kids. It can be marriage. That's where Christians, I think, really struggle because they'll often say to me, but isn't that a good thing that I just want a great marriage? I just want kids that would serve the Lord. I just want to be respected on my job. I just want to have enough money to retire. The word just is fine. None of those things are sins in and of themselves. It's when you begin to want it so much that you're willing to sin to get it, either in what you do or what you don't do because you're spending so much time on this. It could be a sin of omission or commission because this thing now rules you. Do you think that you could give us maybe some examples of what you're talking about, just so that we yeah. can kind of connect the dots? Because I, I think that that's helpful sometimes, especially when you talk about, you know, well, isn't it, isn't that a godly thing to want? Isn't that a good right. thing to want? And so maybe how does that flesh itself out and manifest itself in our everyday Christian life? Yes. Well, I'll touch on two, because there are two that we so quickly, and it's right that we do quickly think this, we say, that's good. That's one of God's good gifts, marriage. That's a good gift. Kids, I mean, he assures us in more than one place in the scriptures, they are a blessing. It's a gift. All right, so, so far, so good. But what if God never intended for there to be anything that he gives us, even if it's a gift, that we begin to take 
And then we say, thank you, God. And no one would say it out loud. They don't say it out loud. They don't write it down, but they just begin to function that way. I will now build my whole world around my marriage. This is now my determination of good day, bad day. My level of joy will not rise above where my marriage is. So don't hear me saying be, not, it's wrong to be concerned about your marriage and say, man, I'd like to grow in our communication or I'd like to grow in our, but it's when this now rules me so that if it's not all that I want it to be, I can't have joy. I struggle to move forward. One of my, one of my tip offs, Christine, is to consider emotions. Emotions are not bad, but emotions are like dashboards on your, your vehicle. They indicate something's up. It's worth tracing it back and checking it out. Extreme emotions, high highs and low lows, setting apart, you know, a physical problem, you know, thyroid or low blood sugar or something. Let's set that aside. Is an indicator that something's up. Uh, extreme anger, extreme fear, extreme worry or depression can often be traced back to something in the heart that you've decided this is my whole world and I must have it. And if I can't get it just the way I want, I don't just sorrow, I'm devastated. That's an operative word, I'm devastated. I just can't go on. So like for instance, right now, Vicki and I are in that season. We just moved our youngest daughter who's 20 into her first apartment with three friends over the weekend. So it's exciting and it's appropriately sad, right? The house is quieter, there's her bedroom, there's still some posters on the wall. Oh my goodness, but she's not here. But what often happens is, and I'll stereotype a little bit, it can, it can go both ways, but you see it more with men who throw themselves into their vocation and their career to the point that their identity becomes synonymous with what they do. It's not just what they do, it's who they are. Often you'll see it with mothers. They're not just a mother. My entire identity is synonymous with that. So that when the kids leave, that's, the world comes up with labels for this, the empty nest syndrome. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and whenever you hear someone say, I just got to take some time to find myself. Well, that's an indication. What just happened is you never should have lost yourself in the first place in the identity of work or image. You know, as we age, you can say, oh, I don't, I don't worship my image, but oh, now that I'm 57, I found this is harder than I thought. You know, I, I see myself in the mirror and I think, oh my goodness, he looks tired. He looks old. He doesn't look like he used to look. In the gym, I've got a shoulder problem now. I've got a lower back problem. I've got an Achilles heel. I got a right elbow. I can't do half the machines anymore. It bothers me more than I thought. But all of a sudden, you know, so when we walk around the block, we've lived there 25 years. People know we had five kids and they know they're leaving and they'll say, oh my goodness, isn't it sad? Oh, and it's almost embarrassing sometimes. We're just like, uh, it's sad, but we actually love each other. I've been looking forward to have conversations where we don't have to spell words. We can play the music we want. You know what I mean? We can yeah. run naked through the house if we want to. So far, I'm, all, I'm the only one that wants to. I thought we would both do that, but she has, she has no interest in doing that. But we love each other, and so it's sad, but it's not devastating. For instance, with COVID, there are people who have lost jobs. That is always painful because it really is a blow to who you are. It's very, it's more than a lack of income. It is a huge blow. But if your career or vocation was your total world and your identity, it's more than just sad, it's devastating. And so that's why a midlife crisis, the world talks about a midlife crisis. Uh, what's a midlife crisis? It's just all of a sudden a wake up call that idolatry was at play. Because now that I've been let go from the company and a younger person can do it twice as fast as I can with a 3D computer, right, uh, that I don't even know how to use. And I, I've got a slide rule and I'm saying, wait for me. I'll get there. I I'm good. I'm good. I used to be the best. That's really hard when they let you go. Or even if it's just as simple as I was always the star third baseman for the church softball team. That might sound silly, but some people live for that. And I blew out my knee sliding into home last summer and I can never play again. And it's just devastating. So like Paul Tripp, if you want to know some other good books, I tried to help people with gospel treason, but there are other books now out there. Paul Tripp's book, and he's a great author. If you don't know him, listeners, his book Lost in the Middle is about midlife, but it's really about idolatry. I had it on my shelf and I was going to wait until I had a midlife crisis to read it. <laughs> 
And when I was preaching on Idols of the Heart, a woman in my church emailed me and said, Brad, Paul Tripp's lost in the middle. That's what it's about, idolatry. I grabbed it and I read it in a weekend. It is fantastic. It's all about not losing your identity into children or marriage or vocation or image or finances. So it can happen on any level, Christine, but you often see it happen with marriage and children in a way that people don't realize what just happened. What are some of the bad fruits then? So let's say we're, we're in a marriage or we're in some kind of relationship and we see that we're constantly butting heads. There's constant conflict even with our kids. What are some of the bad fruits that come into our relationships because of different idols that we have that maybe we just are just blind to? We don't even know. So how does that yeah. affect our interpersonal relationships? Well, you already put your finger right on it, Christine. You used the word conflict. Think, think of this, chaos and conflict always surround idolatry. I'm telling you what, whether it's between me and my wife, myself and one of the kids, a church situation with two families, an elder situation, I find whenever you have one of those times where you're like, what is going on? We just cannot get it sorted out. We'll have meetings and we'll think we're on the same page. And then two days later, nope. And then an email comes back with a red exclamation point. And you're having meeting after meeting after meeting. I have learned, Christine, there is always a hidden agenda. Somebody, and it's usually more than somebody, it's somebody's, are guilty of idolatry. There's something I want, and I want it so bad. I may not be expressing it. That's the tricky thing about idolatry. Nobody wears a sign around their neck at the breakfast table that says, warning, you know, like the dump trucks that say, stay 100 feet back. I have now shifted from just loving you and living with you to building my whole world around our relationship. So lots of expectations for you, big guy or woman, because I need a lot now. And in a sense, it's that we need so much more than we were supposed to need from another person or circumstance that it causes conflict because no one else in this world was designed. No one and nothing was designed to bear the full weight of all of your expectations and desires. And so my go-to passage, uh, Christine, is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Where do wars and fights come from among you? And James is not talking about nation against nation, military wars. He is talking about interpersonal conflict. Where do wars and fights from, come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You, you covet and cannot obtain. You murder it doesn't mean you commit homicide, but isn't it true that when you really want something and that other person isn't giving it to you or they're in your way, if you could, in your fondest moments as you fantasize, you're like, I'd like to kill them. I'd like to take them out. That's how strong it is. So that passage is talking about that word desire is the Greek word epithumia. And whenever the Greeks put the prefix epi on the front of a word, it heightened it. So thumia is a desire doesn't necessarily have to be a sinful desire. Epithumia is I want this so badly that it now drives me. I'll run across you. I'll do whatever it takes to get this. Christine, here's an example. I used to be shocked, but no longer. It's still sad when I see it, but I'm no longer shocked. I have seen grandparents go to war against their kids over, you will not move to Bangladesh as a missionary and me not get to see the grandkids. I had a situation in our area with a family outside of our church. They asked me to help. It was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. And this was a retired pastor and his wife. But they had moved into the area to be near the grandkids. And then this young couple announced they were considering being a part of a team with their church to go and unreach people group. And this set of these grandparents went to war. They began to attack them, slander them said, you're not welcome at the house anymore. We don't want to see you again until you tell us you're not doing it. And here's what it sounds like. How can you do this to us? How could you do this? Now, what's going on? It's not a sin to love your grandkids, but could God call a mother and father with their kids to actually go to another country, even though the grandkids would like, the grandparents would like to? Yes. But they, oh my goodness, they pulled the gloves off and it became, and then they began to email me saying, you're an idiot and I can't believe that you're not. Woo. Anyone that said anything different than what they wanted to hear, they attacked. So whenever you see extreme emotions 
and hostility and the willingness to attack, it's a tip-off that perhaps there's a driving heart idol. Building off that then, Brad, yeah. why is it so painful to deal with it? You know, I, I mean, I know personally, oh, yeah. I would rather be like, okay, I see that's there and I'd like for it not to be there. Well, first, Christine, because I, I can relate entirely. I was already licking my little wounds thinking I'm such a good guy. I can't believe I'm in counseling while I'm in seminary. She never had it so good. Why doesn't she appreciate me? I'm a great guy. Well, then when this was brought to the surface, imagine the compounding of my pain. So there, I think the reason it's so painful, Christine, is all of us have a higher view of ourselves than what is true. And we would prefer not to see the ugliness of our own hearts. And in fact, most of us work really hard to either not see it or cover it up. And so this is not easy. I, I've had many people, I get lots of good feedback where people will say the book changed my life. I also get people who say, I hated your book. I threw it against the wall. And I get reviews sometimes on Amazon where someone will say, ah, another, another book to make you feel bad about yourself. That was not my goal, but it's painful as you begin to go and say, oh Lord, really? That's me? Oops, that's what, what was there. So it's painful to see yourself as God has always seen you. And news alert, folks, others have already seen you this way. They would just love for you to begin to recognize it. <laughs> More than you realize it, we all wear blinders about who we really are. So it's painful because we, we have a high view of ourselves. But here's the other thing that I found, Christine. It's often painful because it's so much rooted in a part of who you've always been. These things that were brought to the surface in my life, they were things that I'd been cultivating and developing my whole life since a little boy. So, so, so I won't leave you in the dark, you guys. It was, I'm, a, I'm an achiever. I'm type A. I go hard. You tell me what hill to take, and I will take it. We will do it. I can do it. And so it was things that I thought were good to see the dark side of it. I, I like to say to people, every positive trait has an Achilles heel. There's a dark side. So my dark side was that I would just run over people to get there. And I also didn't realize so much of what I was doing was not for the glory of God. It was for the glory of Brad. I loved being loved. If you will kill yourself and go hard, people will love you. Everybody except who you live with because <laughs> they never get you. And so the harder I went at church, I was the youth and music guy doing Easter musicals and youth camps and and we do an Easter musical, and now there's the tomb, and now Jesus is going to rise. And I had a gurney and a pulley and a smoke machine. And the bigger <laughs> it got, think about it, the bigger it got, the more accolades I got. Oh, Brad, that was amazing. You are amazing. And then I would get home, and I got silence from Vicki because we didn't have a great relationship, and so it was terrible. I would just choose to go more towards ministry in the church and less towards her because in my own mind, I would, quote, couldn't figure out how to please her. Like, I don't know what she wants. What she wanted was me. What she wanted was a relationship and time. It wasn't that complicated, but I was that typical guy. So it's painful and often it's rooted in who you've been for a long time. And so it doesn't change easily. I just finished counseling a guy who's 50, but here's the good news. I want you to hear this. I hear this all the time. He came in initially. Here's what's so interesting. Here's, here's what it usually looks like. He sent in paperwork saying, please fix my three daughters. We're fighting a lot. His wife had left him. It was a hard situation. His wife had divorced him and left him with three girls. They were fighting. And he said, fix them. And we don't do that. We always start with the, the parents and said, oh, you know, so sorry, but let me meet with you. He didn't like that. Like, I don't have a problem. Meet with them. Parents just want to drop their kids off at the church for counseling. He finally came in and I began to work and he was hesitant, but I connected with him and drew him out. And about session seven, he said, oh my goodness, I have never seen the, he, he was able to see, I helped him to see three key things in his life below the surface that he, from a boy, had not ever recognized is what drives him. And he was sitting there telling me, this has changed how I relate to my daughters. This has changed how I relate to coworkers. I look back now and realize this has been part of my conflict and struggle my whole life with everyone. He was so grateful. Now, he's not a perfect man. So this is what I like to say to people. Don't ever think in terms of, oh, I listened to that sermon series in 2020 and I killed my idols. Now let's talk about end times and let's go move on to other things. I like to speak in terms of identifying your top idols. 
So I am still trying to be killing my top idols. They still surface. And he now has an awareness that he never had before. So instead of trying to go after 15 different bad fruits, he now has three root sins that, oh my goodness, when he pays attention to that, it causes all kinds of fruit sin to drop. And it's the same is true in my own life. And so you don't get as exasperated saying, I hear Christians say, oh, well, I tried to change and it just doesn't work. Because they'll focus on a fruit sin and memorize a Bible verse that says, don't do that. And then wonder why nothing changes. Say, say they're getting angry. They memorize Ephesians 4.26. Do not be angry. Don't let the sun do go down on your wrath. Okie dokie. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of scripture memory. But yeah. you can memorize a scripture and now you're still getting angry and you feel guilty because you memorized a verse that says don't until you determine why am I getting angry. Anger is almost rooted in entitlement, a right. There's something I think I deserve and I'm not getting it from you. You're in my way. And until you repent on that level, anger is simply the emotion that is tied back to that root sin. And oh. It's a breakthrough for people, and they can begin to change. It reminds me, you mentioned Paul Tripp, and it reminds me of the illustration he gave, I think, in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, where he talks about fruit stapling. So you have a yes. tree, and you know, let's call it an apple tree. And so if your apple tree is healthy, it's got a good root system, and the yeah. fruits are sweet and maturing and all these things. But if you have a diseased apple tree, the roots are not healthy. So we're talking about you know, root sins, idolatry. So if our roots as Christians are not healthy, we can't go take yeah. the good apples from the tree and then That's staple right. them onto the leaves of our diseased right. tree and expect that fruit to yes. be able to live. That, that fruit just decays. Yeah. Because fruit stapling doesn't work. Just like you're saying, behavior no. modification doesn't address the sin under the sin. Christine, when you, when you talk that way, think part of the problem is when Christians hear the word heart, they think emotions. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about the control center. Affections are a part of it, but it's talking about the control center, affections, motives, what you prize and value most. So that's why the Bible will say out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why the Bible says, as a man or woman thinks in her heart, so is she. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. With, he's not saying try to get a hold of your emotions and stop them. That doesn't work. He's talking about guard what you are prizing and treasuring and valuing most. Consider it because out of that flows the issues of life. Every time the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about below the surface, who you really are, what you really treasure and worship and prize, what drives you. And when you get a hold of that, ooh, real change is possible. Absolutely. Well, I would just, you know, share a personal example. As we were, my husband and I were going through the earlier sermons in your gospel treason sermon series on your church's website. We'll share more about that in just a little bit. But as we were going through that, I was having, it was, I think the beginning of the coronavirus stuff and the kids are home. And for me personally, I know that I have struggled in, in the past with really, really loving to have a clean house, like really, really loving my <laughs> clean house. And with three kids, it's really, really hard to keep a house clean clean. And so I felt like, you know, the first few days of them being, well, it's been now almost two months, but the first few days, I feel like I'm following them around, you know, with a, with a dustpan and broom and I'm, yeah. I'm still on the couch. And then I realized, and I don't remember what it was that you said, but just the Holy spirit working in my heart to help reveal the depth of the idol that I had. I knew it was there, but the depth yeah. is what really can be surprising. Yeah. And I realized he, he, the Holy spirit helped me realize I cannot have peace and joy unless my house is clean. And that's a problem. <laughs> you may have been hearing me give an illustration because I am wired the same way. And, and obviously I always thought, isn't this a good thing? I like order, I like clean, I like straighten it up. But God had to reveal to me, because we had five little kids, so you can imagine what a conflict this was. Vicky's not a terrible wife. She, But five kids and she was homeschooling, it's not gonna look like a showcase. And I was coming home and just getting frustrated and angry that shoes were on the landing and the towels in the bathroom weren't on the rod, they're on the floor and pillows aren't in the corners of the couch. But God had to reveal to me, here's what I was doing, Christine. So an idol doesn't have to be a person or an object. It can be an idea. I was making an orderly home my refuge. So without realizing it, I was saying to myself as I drove home, I can't control church. 
there's so many things that aren't right. There's so many things that are undone. There's so many messes that I'm in the midst of. But when I get home, mm, my home has to be, and it doesn't have to be. I just wanted it. But instead of finding my refuge in Christ, I was making an orderly home my false refuge. And you can see what it was doing. It was really putting a strain on my relationship with Vicky. Our idolatry impacts the people closest to us the most and wreaks havoc on our relationships. Idolatry always does. And so when I repented, and she, she knew what I liked. She, she would try to rally the troops and pick up Legos and stuff before daddy got home. But it would also help if daddy would repent and have new thinking. And literally, I got a verse that I got a hold of from Proverbs, Christine, that uh, says something like, where the oxen are, there's poop in the stall or something, you know, that, you know, be glad you have oxen. They get work done. So I just found myself, I just literally said to myself, there are people that pay thousands of dollars to adopt children and they go through years of struggle and paperwork and God's given us five children. I have little oxen who have little bikes and have little shoes and they'll be gone one day. I should thank the Lord and let up on, I have to. So I changed what I was wanting and thinking and my idolatry of a refuge of peaceful orderly home and it just made such a difference in our relationship. Yeah, it is definitely a painful recognition to come to some of those things because, you know, to yeah. some degree, we, at least initially, maybe we get something from that idol. We get that peace, that contentment. Oh, yeah. When it's served, then we get something, but it continues to cost us in order to get yeah. that benefit. One more question about idolatry before we start to bring in, okay, what's the gospel remedy? You know, because we're talking a lot about how, you know, the, the yeah. bad fruits, the conflict, the damage to the relationships. One more quick question, and I want to just pull in, you know, we, I did mention the coronavirus, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about today and helpful. How do you think coronavirus in the United States especially has served actually to reveal idols of oh. the heart? Freedoms have been stripped away kids if we have them are home maybe like you've mentioned we've lost jobs and so can you talk to how even in today's context how yes. idolatry is being exposed through yeah. something like a global pandemic right i think whenever we go into anything that involves restrictions or limitations so think about it, that's why aging can reveal idolatry there's things i can't do that i used to do seasons of life reveal idolatry mostly as you change seasons or age there's limitations that you face. Well, this was a massive all at once. We didn't even see it coming. Nobody got a heads up. Kaboom. Massive restrictions and limitations. So yes, Christine, I think it is just, it has come directly against some of our biggest idols, which I believe two of the biggest that we as human beings are prone to step into is health and safety. That That's my comfort. I've got good health and I know I'm safe. My world is orderly. I'm doing what I need to do and finances. Money is not the root of all evil. You, you hear that quoted all the time. That is a misquote. It actually says in Timothy, money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's all kinds of other root sins. It's one. Money's not a sin, but hum, human beings quickly begin to put their trust and hope in it. So think about those that were in retirement or nearing retirement you know, I'm not even that close to retirement, but yeah, I, I watched my little evangelical free church fund that a little bit of my paycheck goes each month go, wow. And when I got online, I was like, you're kidding me. Cause it had been pretty exciting there for a while. I was watching it just, I was like, oh my goodness, what in the world are we going to do? <laughs> and uh, then it was the opposite effect. Like, wow. So you find out it's easy to say when something isn't threatened, that that's not an idol. So you'll hear people, oh, my children aren't an idol. You can say you really don't know sometimes until it's threatened. Oh, my health is not an idol. But how, what are you like when you have a health threat or concern? And so that, or a financial concern. And so it's not wrong to be concerned, but if you can't sleep, you can't have peace, you have no joy, it's all you can think about. You're distraught. You don't want to serve the Lord anymore. It's a tip off that perhaps that meant more than it ever should have meant. So I'd say finances, I'd say health and safety, even think about image. We can't go to the gym. I mean, yours truly, that bothered me. I go three times a week and ah, LA fitness. And uh, I jumped online and I tried Dick's and I tried Walmart. I tried to get myself a 
a set of Bowflex dumbbells that I could use at home. And I mean, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. But I had to sit there and say, all right, how important is it? Is it okay if I have to go all these weeks without exercising? It's great to exercise, but what if you think I must? So it's just hit on all kinds of things. Freedoms, you know, think about there's, there's a lot of people that like, I have to have my time, my time. You know, wine night with the girls, shopping, coffee out with a friend. That all came crashing down. All of a sudden, it's like nonstop my family, who I sort of loved, but I don't <laughs> love you this much. I, you know, and you find out I actually looked forward to those times away, maybe more than I should have. As, and, but here's the other thing, Christine. Sometimes you were seeing those things as a right. I, I must. Well, no, you, you don't must. Because obviously now we've all done without it. <laughs> so those are just some of the things that come to my mind. Now that we've gotten, hopefully, the listeners, and I know for me personally going through your book, a really solid understanding of idols of the heart, the damage they do, and the bad fruits that come from it. We say, okay, that sounds good. I agree with what Christine and Brad are saying. What do I do now? What's the next step? Can you maybe just explain what that process might look like for someone who's just getting started? Yes. Let me give someone a great prayer place to start. So if, if a listener is thinking, wow, I really have, every time I've heard idolatry or idols, I've just thought that's another country that has a Buddha or a brass image, or I'd never thought about I could be guilty of idolatry. How would I know? What should I do? A great starting point is Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way. I hear Christians complain a lot. Oh, prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. God doesn't answer my prayers. And often we're, we're praying selfishly and we're praying the wrong stuff. I, I love to say to people, here's a prayer he would love to answer. He's like leaning over the heavenlies saying, would you please ask me? Ask me this. I would love to show you your heart. And so get quiet with a piece of paper and just say, God, so whenever I counsel someone, I'm always saying, I want you to pray every week, God, show me everything I'm not seeing about me. Show me everything I'm not seeing about me. If you start praying that, ah, and, and test my anxious thoughts, right? Why am I so anxious? What is it rooted in? He can help you, as well as a conversation with another friend. So I'd say, pray that prayer. And then I would say, be humble enough to maybe involve someone else. It doesn't have to be official counseling. Another brother or sister just in conversation who's willing to ask good questions and listen well, if you invite them to actually speak into your life and you give them permission, you say, I won't take offense, I'm not going to attack you or cut you off, there might be some things they could tell you that they've been seeing about you that they just didn't have an invitation from you to bring it into your view. So prayer, perhaps another brother or sister, and then think in terms of this, the Bible never tells us to stop things. If you notice the scriptures, it's put off, put on, put this off, put this on, put this off, put. So if anger's your deal, you want to find out what it's rooted in, and you're going to have to put off that right that you were thinking you were entitled to. And here's, here's some good news. So many of the idols we step into, the put off, the put on is identity in Christ. That one thing solves a hundred problems. So think about it with the mother. What's the answer if she's like, oh my goodness, it's not sadness, it's devastated that my daughter has left for college and it's just me and my husband. The put on is to get a hold of, oh, I'm, I'm an adopted daughter of the king. My identity in Christ is number one. I should never have lost my identity. You'll still be a mother. Trust me. We've got five kids. They text Vicki relentlessly. They call her. They love her. They come... Once a mama, always a mama. But there's this transition where they're just not with you all the time. It's your identity in Christ. How do you get a hold of being okay with a marriage that's a six and you wish it was a 10? You can keep praying and doing what you can on your end to improve. But as you settle into, oh, my bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is my perfect husband. Here's something that might rattle the listeners, but if you could get a hold of it, it would help you. Everything in this world, whether it's marriage, kids, image, health, church, finances, it was never designed to fully satisfy you. There, I just said it. Even Christian marriage. So I like to say to people, everything, even good things God gave us, leak. Christian marriage has a hole in the bottom of that boat. It was never meant to fully satisfy you. 
And so that's what's going on in Romans chapter one. That's my other go-to passage, Romans 1, 21 to 26, where you'll see Paul talk about an exchange. They've exchanged the glory of God for something in this created world. Could be marriage, parenting, work, identity, career. They've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. The best translations don't say a lie, the lie. What's the lie? That I can be satisfied in this world without God. If I build my world around something else and get enough of it, I can be fully satisfied. It's a lie. And then they've exchanged his design for something twisted. And he uses the example of homosexuality uh, and, and begins to talk about homosexuality. Unfortunately, that passage almost always gets saved by Christians to just talk about homosexuality being a sin. Homosexuality is Paul's exhibit A of the fruits of this sin. We're all in that passage. It's describing all of our hearts that we exchange. We want to try to be satisfied in something in this world, even if it's marriage or parenting, instead of needing God like we should. So the more you can be satisfied in God and your relationship with Christ, the less you can need from your significant others and your relationship can actually get better, not necessarily because they change, but because you let up. I love a quote by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in his wonderful chapter on hope towards the end. He says, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world fully satisfies, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God gave us marriage and it's temporary. He gave us kids and it's temporary. Nothing in this world was designed to fully satisfy you. You actually need a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. I guess, Pastor Brad, the trap I felt into personally is, you know, you recognize an idol, you say, okay, yeah, that really does need to change. I see why it's bad and I want to change it. And then we go off in our own strength and try yeah. to fix ourselves. And so I wonder if you might be able to share with us, okay, we've, we've identified something, maybe we have someone coming alongside us. How do we yeah. then actually do the work of day in, day out, instead of just saying, now I've got to be better. Now I've right. got to make better choices. I mean, those Very things are, are important, but yeah. you know, we're forgetting and leaving behind the, you know, we have the moral effort and then we have the divine enablement piece. Right. And so can you explain a little bit about how that would work out so that we don't fall into self-condemnation or despair because yes. of how much we continue to struggle? Yes. Great question. Getting a hold of this and getting to a new place is far more than identifying a few root sins or idols. That's just the beginning. As much as that's an aha moment that most people haven't had, you are not done. And like I said, you are not done for a lifetime. I'm not done for a lifetime. But here's the good news. That was 30 years ago in counseling that these top idols were flushed to the surface in my life. Christine, right over here, it's out of view, but on this shelf are my black prayer journals that I use every morning. I use them this morning. My top idols are written in those journals on different days, and I have a repentance plan where if that's my idol, I wrote new thinking. What should my thinking be? What did I used to say to myself? Because often an idol is fueled by what we say to ourselves, what I believe, what I'm rehearsing over and over, what I'm wanting, what am I saying I have to have? And you write new thinking because repentance, uh, the, the Greek word is metanoia, made up from two words. Meta is change. Noia is taken from noose. It's a change of mind. It's a change of mind that is so strong, it changes the direction of your life. See, until the heart and thinking changes, the direction won't change for long. And that's why superficial, just, just do this, date your wife, doesn't work. So I wrote new thinking that surrounds each of my top idols. And then I wrote new actions of what I should do. Usually it's easiest to start with the bad. I just brainstorm, what have I been saying to myself about this? And you can look at it and say, okay, not so good. That doesn't line up with script. Now, what should I say? What have I been doing? What should I do? And then I do memorize some scripture, but notice scripture memory is not all I'm doing. It's within the context of new thinking and new actions and scripture memory. If you're talking about your listeners really getting help, if they go to a good biblical counselor, they won't release them as soon as the idols are identified. A good counselor or friend stays with you long enough and walks beside you long enough to see it become a habit. So it was week six or seven that this guy that's 50 said, oh my goodness, this is a breakthrough. 
it was so funny. He was so excited. He said, Brad, did you mean to do this? Was this supposed to happen this week? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, I always pray that it'll happen at some point. I didn't release him. I, we met 13 sessions. I stayed with him because here's what he said three times. Oh, this is hard. He would come back each week saying, oh, this is hard. And he kept saying, I didn't expect this to be such hard work. So change is hard, but it's possible once you have new thinking and new plan of action, and you recognize how this is really hurting your relationship, but then you got to work at it. And, and again, I didn't stay with him until, oh, he's perfect. He's not, but he has a plan. He's identified it. I stayed with him long enough. What I actually, this might sound cheesy, but what I actually start doing with my counselees, I, I simply have a three by five card and I printed them all up and it says, catch yourself. Wow, real, real rocket science here. And so I'll say to him or her, when you come back next week, I want to give, I want you to give me three examples, practical, real life. See, you can have a great conversation in the counseling session. And if this isn't beginning to get traction in real life, that's not a change. I want you to give me three examples where you were about to say what you always say, about to do what you always do. You were about to go ahead and think what you always think, but by God's spirit, you thought, no, this is what we've been talking about, and you did something different. They get so excited. Then I get excited, and we build, right? And, oh, he came back one week so excited about how he did not respond to his 14-year-old the way he had been that was escalating into a huge drama knock down, drag out. And he said, Brad, it works. It works. But his heart, his heart had changed in what he wanted. He stayed calm and he got a very different result from his daughter and the relationship improved. So that's a little bit of what I'm, you would write a plan and often I'll give them one of my plans. So I have a plan for how I tried to repent of self-pity, how I tried to repent of pride, how I tried to repent of ingratitude and, so, and anger. One of mine was anger, getting too angry with my teenage boys. And sometimes when they see that, they're like, oh, okay. And because uh, people struggle for the practical side of it. What do you mean? What do you mean? Right, exactly. And I would just encourage listeners too, if you are interested, of course, get the copy of Gospel Treason, and that will help to go into this topic way more deeply. I mean, it's a huge topic in and of itself, but definitely a lot of practical help in that particular book. And I love how you mentioned the fact that I think there is a light switch moment that comes where we recognize, especially in our battles against idolatry, that we have the choice. I love Tim Chester said that change is in our DNA. So the moment we come to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. Change right. now is in our DNA. So before Christ, you know, we didn't have the choice between right. righteousness and sin. But now right. in Christ, we do have those choices. And so I think just recognizing that in and of itself gives hope to the situation. Yeah. Like, oh, you're right. I can change now. It's going to be yeah. hard and I'm probably not going to yeah. do all that great, you know, right out the get-go, yeah. but it's possible. And through That's the Holy right. Spirit and abiding in Christ and his word, it will happen. It just, That's like right. you mentioned, it takes a lifetime. Yeah, we've got some bad theology out there that matches what we wish was true, that there's some kind of secret that just gets you in the zone, a formula. And sometimes Christians expect prayer to be that. Well, I prayed about it and this should just go. I said, God, take this from me. I've got news for you. It doesn't work that way. You mentioned effort, but I would I call it a grace-empowered effort. Yeah. You do have to put forth effort. My favorite verse to use in counseling is 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God. I love how his effort is sandwiched between two mentions of grace. It's too grace for every one of our effort, but we do have to put forth effort or you will not change. But God's spirit is in you. God's word is alive to you. God's throne of grace is open to you day and night. And you've got brothers and sisters in Christ through Zoom right now <laughs> who can encourage you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Pastor Brad, we are just about out of time for our conversation today, but I do want to ask you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening today to this conversation who is actually really encouraged. You know, these are hard things to hear, but they're feeling encouraged. They feel inspired, so to speak, to pray that prayer from Psalm 139, I think you said. And so what would you say to this listener to encourage them 
to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and to pray that sometimes uncomfortable prayer, but to go yeah. on a, a journey with Christ into the depths of their heart and yeah. be willing to sit there and spend some time with, with Jesus. What would you say to that person to encourage them to do that? I think here's what I would want to say, Christine, if this was my parting comment. You've indicated this is not easy. It's painful. So I want to get, I think I would leave them with a caution. Yay, I'm glad you're excited that you would pray that prayer. But I would say, do not lose sight of who you already are in Christ right now with your ugly, idolatrous heart. So this is not an achieve thing so that he'll love you more. It's going to be painful and ugly. So you've got to make sure you understand there's right now no condemnation to you. You're going to have greater freedom. And you're going to have better relationships with people, but you are not earning God's love. He, he doesn't love you any more than he does today. You are his child. So take this journey, not feeling the weight of condemnation that until I get you know, repent of these fully and get to a better place, he doesn't really love me. We actually grow and change more when we do know that we're loved already. And my father is helping me. His spirit is in me. And the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is mine to draw on. So I would caution people, don't get lost in your heart. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Think about Hebrews 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look at your heart. Look at your Savior. Don't lose sight of your Savior. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. Those are really excellent encouragements to part ways with on this conversation. I want to give you the opportunity, if there's someone listening here who wants to get more connected with you, your resources, the different sermons you have available through your church, can you share where they can connect with you online? Yes. I think I've been here 25 years and we've got a preaching team, so it can get confusing when you go to the church site. So I created a site that can be much easier to navigate it's simply bradbigney.com, no dots, no dashes, and you can find workshops that are free. You can listen to summer videos. You can see my list of recommended books. There's just a lot of things there. Just go to bradbigney.com, and pretty much everything there is, is yours to access. Pastor Brad, thank you so much for taking the time. What a helpful, insightful, sometimes painful conversation. I'm just really thankful that you joined us here today. Thank you for the time. It's, it's my joy to share with others. It's like one beggar telling other beggars where I found bread. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.